Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. When Leonard Rett was a kid, he was always on the move. Growing up in our neighborhood, we played sports all the time. I mean, if it was a ball, we played it. Leonard kept playing sports as an adult, especially softball, until he was in his 30s. And then, you know, life changes, work schedules, jobs. You get married, you have children. He's a truck driver, so he spent a lot of time sitting. And when he wasn't on the road, the kids' schedules took over. There was no time to do things like exercise. And he started to gain weight. You know, it's one of those things where you, you know, you're just so busy in life and doing things. And then one day you look up from the laundry basket and you're 455 pounds. You try to figure out what happened. Leonard knew his sedentary job played a role and how he ate. I had the world's most terrible diet. There's just no no other way around it. I had the world's most terrible diet. Fruits and vegetables, I never ate them. You know, everything was a sugary drink, milkshakes. And the weight was really getting in the way of enjoying life. Like during a family trip to Disney World in 2017 with his wife and youngest son. Got on a plane, and I purposely took the seats in the front of the plane for the legroom. Well, on this particular airline, and I had never seen it before, and I've flown quite a bit, the only seats where the armrest didn't go up were the seats in the front. I had never seen that before. With the armrest in the way, the seats were just too narrow. So I had to give up my seats going, and then I had to give up my seats coming back. And once they got to Disney, Leonard realized he didn't fit on any of the rides. The toughest part of that was I couldn't ride the rides with my son, who was seven at the time. Being there with him, and I I couldn't enjoy it because I couldn't ride anything with him. He wondered, was his son even having fun without his dad being able to join? That was a tough period to get through that entire week, not being able to ride things with him. For Leonard, this trip ended up being a turning point where he decided to make some big life changes to lose weight. The one motivating factor is that I never set a goal in terms of a number. It was just always to get as healthy as I could get. And the changes he made paid off. There was a time when, you know, you go outside and it's raining and you just, you know, you just walk, you get wet. I I could actually run to get out of the rain. Like, it was like getting 25, 30 years of your life back. Millions of people in the U.S. have obesity, more than two in five adults. It's been called a public health crisis, and the numbers keep rising. But scientists are beginning to understand the complicated relationship between fat cells and the rest of our bodies, and why it can be so difficult to lose weight. And powerful new drugs seem to offer hope to many people. On today's episode, a fat researcher breaks down what exactly happens when people gain weight, a pediatrician goes on a hunt for better solutions to help her young patients, and we'll get an update from Leonard Rett and his path toward a healthier life. 
Let's get started with the actual fat cells, which are the engine of obesity in a way. Evangelia Bella studies fat cells. She is an associate professor of bioengineering at Temple University. And she says we tend to think of fat as the enemy, but it does a lot of important work in our bodies. It does so much. So it is considered an endocrine organ, although classically it wasn't. So back until, I think, the late 1980s, it was thought as a storage unit Mm -hmm. for fats, for lipids. But it turns out that it's actually communicating with your brain. It is communicating with your gut. It is communicating with your nervous system, with your heart, with, you know, all major organ systems. And it's helping regulate your metabolic homeostasis. So one cool example of that was in the 1990s, there was this hormone found called leptin. So leptin is something that's released by your white fat cells in response to you having a meal. So once you've eaten, your fat cells start to produce this leptin. That leptin goes into the bloodstream up to the brain and tells your brain, hey, you know, I'm good. We don't need to eat anymore. So that's a normal sort of situation. When patients have metabolic dysfunction, in some cases when they're obese, what happens, you have your fat cells are producing a lot of this leptin and it's going to the brain, but it's not working normally. Somehow the signal isn't received in the same way. And so those people never really get that signal to say, stop, stop eating. When you were first talking about what we used to think of fat and its role, it sounded like we were thinking of it as a battery, but now it <laughs> yeah. sounds to me more like it's a cell phone communicating messages. Yes, 100%. Yeah, that's a really great way to think about it. Now we just know that it's communicating with so many different organs, and we barely understand that. For example, fat cells play a role in the fight-or-flight response. Basically, what will happen is that you have a signal that's released from your nervous system that's excited, right? And that acts on the fat cells, on your fat tissue. And then your fat cells release all of this energy into your bloodstream so that you can be powered up and ready to run or to fight. And so that's one example of how it's really there to provide energy. We have different kinds of fat cells in our bodies, white, brown, and beige, and they have different functions. But for this conversation, we focused on the white fat cells. So those are the ones that we think of when, you know, we want to lose weight. Those are the ones that we're most familiar with. It's the fat right under your skin, the fat that's inside your abdominal cavity, and the fat that layers itself around some of our organs. So there's like these little fat pads that sit on top of organs and interact with specific ones. So it's found on the heart, the kidneys, a lot of different organs. How do we get fat cells in the first place? Do we have a specific amount in us? Do I add to them by eating hamburgers? Like, how do we get there? Yeah, so it's interesting. As adults, we don't really have too many changes to our ultimate fat cell numbers, So once we've gone through our growth phases and we're in that adult phase, we don't usually grow that many more fat cells. What happens if we see that our fat tissue mass is changing, that's usually because each individual fat cell is now expanding. And they can expand to about three times their size. So they can get pretty big. Also, Evangelia says that our stem cells can convert into fat cells. 
And that's thought of more of a healthy expansion. So they might be replacing ones that have died off. And, you know, it's just part of like a natural sort of homeostasis or sort of balancing of the, the tissue. When we're gaining weight, the fat cells expand. Mm-hmm. So when we lose weight, do they shrink or do we shed some of them or what happens? Yeah. So one thing I, I, I think is important to clarify here is that when we gain and lose weight, it's not all through fat mass. So it can be sometimes we do it through muscle mass or muscle gaining or, or loss. But when we are talking about the fat cells, yes, if we're gaining fat mass, each fat cell is going to get a little larger. And there's a point where it becomes a bit pathological or bad. And so when that expansion or when that fat cell gets too big, it can actually get stressed in various ways. And that stress is going to basically send off a lot of inflammatory signals and a lot of almost like scarring signals to the body. And so when you have those scarring and inflammatory signals, it's going to change the environment for that for the, for the fat tissue, and it's going to turn it into more diseased state. And when that state is prolonged or excessive, you can actually get scarring of your fat tissue. And that restricts the ability for those fat cells to grow and shrink in response to, say, diet and energy usage. Is that perhaps part of the reason why it can be so difficult to to lose weight, especially it seems like for people who have struggled with obesity for mm. quite some time. I definitely think that could be something that's happening. We don't typically look at people, you know, in the doctor's office for how scarred their fat is, right? If we had a sense of how much scarring there was in there, I think we would have a good sense of is this person a good candidate for standard weight loss therapies where we just think of, you know, maybe diet and exercise? Um, so there are some patients that no matter how hard they undergo, you know, these diet programs and these exercise programs, they might not be able to lose weight as well because their their fat tissue environment is not normal anymore. So it has potentially that scarring and that inflammation that has to be overcome in order for them to lose weight. And if you were to look at that through a microscope, would you be able to see that, oh, this is scarred fat tissue? Yes. What does it look like? Yes. So basically what you see are these collagen structures. Um, so there's, you know, collagen is in most tissues in the body and, and fat is no exception. Um, so it has these nice collagen bundles that are sort of supporting all the fat tissue. And when you have scarring, you see a lot more of that collagen in there. And it's sort of restricting the ability for those fat cells to grow and shrink. Once the fat tissue has that scarring, is there something that can be done to reverse that? Or is that just here to stay? Yeah. So this is a question I pose to a lot of fellow fat researchers, um, because I'm really curious to understand, is there a threshold? Is there a point of no return where we can't undo that damage easily. And I don't think we have a good sense of that yet. You know, my gut feeling is that we do have a threshold that once you pass it, it's really hard to undo that damage. And that's why we see people with these high levels of scarring not being able to lose weight easily. But I do think that there is a lot of opportunity before we get to that threshold, that sort of arbitrary threshold that we don't really understand to get to that point, maybe undo some of that damage.
When fat cells expand, it also impacts how they interact with blood vessels. Blood vessels are really important for fat tissue to function normally because it is, like you mentioned, a cell phone, right? Your fat cells are communicating to the rest of your body. And the conduit in which they do that, that's through the blood vessels. That's how they communicate, you know, to the rest of the body and how they hear from the rest of the body as well. So each fat cell in a normal condition will be right next to a small blood vessel. That's how important their connection is, so that each fat cell has its own, you know, blood vessel attached right to it. As those fat cells grow in volume and they get further and further away from that original blood vessel tree, they can't perform their function in the same way. Evangelia says the blood vessels can't keep up with the increase in fat tissue. And now you're expecting those blood vessels to provide all of the nutrients and, you know, remove the waste and do all the stuff that they do. But for now, a tissue volume that's much larger. So they can't always do that. And when that happens, you end up with hypoxia or low oxygen in the tissue. And that will kick off a lot of that stress in the tissue that I mentioned before. And the sort of other bad thing that can happen in that case is that fat cells get stressed as they grow in size. And so some of those stress signals end up being communicated to the rest of the body, right? So there's still a little bit of that blood flow, but the signals now they're sending out are more stress signals. And that's why we see, you know, people with obesity end up having a lot of other comorbidities because now those stress signals and that inflammation from that fat is now getting into the rest of the body. It sounds to me like the blood vessels and that system has to work harder if there is a lot of fat cells because it's trying to communicate with all of these fat cells. Does that then impact like how well that system works as well? Is that part of the reason why we see so much heart disease in relation to obesity? Right. So I think a lot of times when we see the heart disease, that is often the effect of the increased inflammation that the fat tissue, the inflamed fat tissue is giving off. So the blood vessels are still, you know, basically functional. They're just, they're not sufficient. There isn't enough to prevent the tissue from becoming stressed. So instead, those blood vessels still do work, but what they're sending out now is that inflamed signal, that sort of stress signal, and that, when that acts on the heart, when that acts on different tissues and organs, that's what causes a lot of the comorbidities that we see because now your your whole body is becoming this little bag of inflammation, and, and we know that inflammation generally is not great, especially when it's chronic and low-grade inflammation. So that's the stuff that stays around for a while. Whereas, you know, little bits of acute inflammation, that like those are okay, but this is low-grade chronic inflammation. That's what leads often to the heart disease that we see. We have all these different assumptions about fat. Like we can melt it, we can oh, suck it out of our bodies, we can cool <laughs> it, freeze it, sculpt it. Yeah. Can we? <laughs> You know, again, I'm, I'm going to put my my specific fat lens on this because my my sort of perspective on it is that if we are killing off these fat cells in our tissue, what we're doing, again, is we're causing 
the tissue to become inflamed and stressed in response to this cell death. And we know that's not a good a good thing. I don't know how easy it is for that sort of that stress signal to go away in those cases. You know, often these these um, procedures are not indicated for patients who have severe obesity, right? And we know that, you know, they're not going to have as good a blood vessel situation in their tissue, which means they can't, they can't like clear things easily in that tissue. So maybe it works okay in, you know, the average healthy person of a normal BMI. I'm putting this in air quotes. You can't see it there, but like, <laughs> right, the normal weight range for the mm-hmm. BMI. So they might have well-functioning vasculature in their tissue. And so maybe all those stress signals can get cleared away really quickly. I just, I don't feel comfortable with the idea of sort of melting it away or freezing it away again, just because I think what that's leaving behind is that inflammatory signal that we don't know the long-term damage of it. Evangelia Bella studies fat cells. She is an associate professor of bioengineering at Temple University in Philadelphia. Coming up, there is a run on new injectable weight loss drugs, and it's creating a budget nightmare for many companies that are paying for their employees' health plans. Oh my God, this is like, how bad, how, how crazy could this get? That's next on The Pulse. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why Betterment believes cash can be a strategic choice. There are times when the market is volatile, when customers are a little nervous about investing. We came to understand that there was an opportunity to introduce cash as part of an investing strategy and to give back yields to the customer. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. This message comes from the Kresge Foundation. Established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity. More at kresge.org. 
This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about obesity. Right now, injectable weight loss drugs like Ozempic are changing the way obesity is treated. Some of these drugs were originally approved for treating diabetes since they prompt the pancreas to make more insulin to regulate blood sugar. They can also reduce appetite. I asked researcher Evangelia Bellas how these drugs affect fat cells. So Ozempic was something that, you know, I really had to learn about as it was becoming really popular in the news because it isn't something that works directly on your fat cells, or at least it's thought to work on the gut. And in different parts of the gut, it has different responses. So it basically helps block absorption of certain dietary fats and other components of your diet. It helps signal to your pancreas to make new insulin. So it helps with your glucose levels, your blood glucose levels. But in a lot of cases, what's happening to the fat tissue is not really talked about. It's sort of ignored or like just cast aside. And so I always thought that was pretty interesting. So I did look into what we know about those types of drugs and what they might do on the fat cells. And there really just, there isn't that much on it. In the literature, it seems that it may play a role in reducing the stress levels in the fat cells enough to help them sort of course correct a little bit, mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting. The other area where it might help is in that fat sort of mobilization and release from your fat cells. So that might be why you're able to lose weight quickly because it's not just that, you know, you're changing your caloric intake or your absorption, but it does seem that it's a little bit more than that, that you're actually losing fat mass as well. And so if you have better dietary fat mobilization from your fat cells, there's a good chance that that's also sort of a side effect of these ozempic type drugs. That's Evangelia Bellas. She studies fat cells. She's an associate professor of bioengineering at Temple University in Philadelphia. A lot of doctors are calling this new class of obesity drugs revolutionary. These drugs are helping people lose 10 to 20 percent of their weight on average. But they're also very expensive, about $900 a month. And you have to stay on them. Over $5 billion was spent on these drugs for weight loss and diabetes in just the first half of this year. So who is paying for this? The bulk of the cost is falling on companies and employers because half of Americans get their health insurance through work. And that leads to some tough questions. How can employers cover the cost without busting their budgets? And who should be eligible for the coverage? Dan Gorenstein, host of the podcast Trade-Offs, looked into this. The hype around these new anti-obesity drugs seemed to explode this spring. People with type 2 diabetes are excited about the potential of once-weekly Ozempic. We just asked. Is Ozempic right for you? Television, billboard, social media ads for Ozempic rained down. See how I worked with my doctor to incorporate Ozempic with diet and exercise. Adults lost on average up to 12 pounds. Ozempic, which hit the scene back in 2017 to treat type 2 diabetes, has fast become popular for weight loss. Hollywood celebrities talking it up. Jolo, you look 
thin. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Ozempi? Yep. Made a cameo at the Oscars. You look great. Everybody looks so great. When I look around this room, I can't help but wonder, is Ozempic right for me? And prescriptions have skyrocketed. One analyst projects the global market for this new class will reach $50 billion by 2028. And, no surprise, over the last year, companies have seen their prescription drug spending at the pharmacy soar in tandem. The cost of this drug alone is threatening to increase pharmacy budgets, maybe even bust pharmacy budgets. That's Jeff Levenshurs. He's a consultant with the firm Willis Towers Watson, which now calls itself WTW. Jeff says the popularity and cost of the drugs have caught employers flat-footed, so much so that some, like the University of Texas System and Ascension, decided to cut off coverage altogether. Other businesses are using various tactics to limit prescriptions, guiding workers to diet programs, or steering them towards cheaper drugs to lose weight. I think more employers are in the position where they're realizing that this is a big potential cost problem, but are not yet unequivocally making a decision to remove coverage from these drugs. Like so many employers around the country, the cost of these new obesity drugs has put the state of Connecticut in a bind. The state's health plan, which covers more than 200,000 public employees, retirees, and their dependents, is on track to spend more than $30 million on these drugs a year. That's more than triple what Connecticut spent in just 2020. Oh my God, this is like, how bad, how, how crazy could this get? Josh Wojcik is the policy guy for the state comptroller's office, which runs accounting, finances, and the state's health insurance plan. Back in April, Josh remembers crunching the numbers, punching his calculator. I'm walking down to present this uh, to the comptroller. You know, I'm feeling nervous. Even though the state's policy only paid for the drug to treat diabetes, Josh could see in the numbers people were using it for weight loss, and that had the state headed for a brick wall. So he headed over to Sean Scanlon's office, the state's comptroller. Sean remembers Josh walking in. I immediately understood what he was saying, which is that, you know, we think we have a real reason to do this for from a couple of different perspectives. Number one, It's the right thing to do. People want to lose weight. They want to get healthier. I think it's not corny to say that your employees' productivity is based on how they're feeling and how they're doing. And if our employees can be happier and healthier, um, then I think we can make a big difference in terms of what we are able to get done here as a state. But as much as the pair wanted to cover the drug for obesity, Josh and Sean also knew they wanted to needed to slow down the spending. So they hatched a plan and kicked it off in July. Anybody on the state health plan who wants access to these meds for obesity must work with IntelliHealth, a company that specializes in obesity care. Sean explains that IntelliHealth is screening workers with obesity to understand the root cause of their problem. There's a million different reasons why somebody is clinically obese. We know that there are ways to treat this and there are ways to improve your life and your health. And we, we think we know that pairing somebody with an obesity specialist is one really good way to do that. 
Depending on that workup, some employees get a prescription for the new weight loss meds, while others get different lower-cost treatments. This is one reason Sean says he's optimistic that the state will be able to curb spending. Based on all the data I'm seeing, this is going to make a difference and will ultimately save the state money. Here's the idea. The state is basically cutting a deal with its workers. In exchange for this coverage, employees are committing to take the drug weekly, show up for follow-up visits. Consultants who advise employers on their health plans say this kind of drug and lifestyle combo is common, and it certainly reflects both old-school thinking, people must be motivated, and the new school, give people drugs that actually help them with a medical condition. These drugs should be covered, but we shouldn't be just covering these drugs without actually requiring people to do what makes the drugs work even better for our investment in them. Olivia Quagliani is in the first wave of people going through the state of Connecticut's plan. The 26-year-old high school counselor has struggled with weight all of her life. I would eat slower and make sure that I wasn't eating any more than anybody else because I didn't want them to associate that with, oh, well, that's why she's bigger. She's eating more than me. Something that I knew existed, but no one ever talked about. Olivia felt bombarded with messages. Eat right, exercise, do more, be better, be different. And she tried. Olivia played softball. She skated wing on her high school hockey team. She made the rounds with all the diets. And yet, she gained weight. I kind of just, like, hated myself for it. Um, I was disgusted. And I remember thinking, like, how did I let myself, like, look like this? Growing up, everybody said she was in the driver's seat. And Olivia internalized that. She figured if she was in control and she was this heavy, she was the problem. I just felt very, like, what is wrong with me? Her thinking started to change this March. She found a doctor who treated her weight and related health problems like a medical condition and prescribed her Ozempic. At first, Olivia was skeptical. I don't remember a time where I ever lost weight, ever, no matter what I did, you know? So I was like, if that actually happens, I'm going to be blown away. And she was. In just four months, Olivia lost 30 pounds, all while maintaining the same lifestyle. In July, Olivia switched off her parents' insurance and signed up with the state of Connecticut. But when she went to refill her prescription, she was hit with a bill. $900 a month for Ozempic, unaffordable on her high school counselor's salary. So I, I start freaking out because I'm like, wait, no, 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 <laughs> no, this is actually working for me. Don't do this. Stopping the prescription was out of the question, says Olivia. So she agreed to the terms of the state's plan and met with the weight loss experts. A few minutes into her first appointment with the nurse, she was nearly in tears because there was no blame, no shame, but rather the nurse talked about it like an issue that could and should be managed. I stopped him and I was like, I could cry right now. <laughs> like, there's the way that you're even talking to me. I'm not stuck like this forever. Being on a drug like that, like, doesn't make me lazy or, you know, it, it's treating a medical condition I've had for a very long time. Surveys show that right now, about 40% of large U.S. companies are covering Ozempic and the other popular new drugs for weight loss. 
On the plus side, it can lead to healthier employees, fewer sick days, and improved productivity. But given the steep price tag, employers will have to make some very tough choices, like where to draw the line in terms of who is eligible and whether they want to take on big new costs for their businesses and pass some of those onto their workers in the form of higher premiums. That was Dan Gorenstein reporting. He's the host of the podcast, Trade-Offs. We'll put a link to the full episode on this issue on our website. Coming up, a pediatrician is tired of having so few options for her young patients with obesity. You have 20 minutes from beginning to end with a patient. So you can't really explore any diet and food issues within that time frame. So what are some better solutions for kids? That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about obesity. 20 years ago, pediatric gastroenterologist Christine Nguyen would rarely see children who had health issues related to obesity. Now, it's a big driver of issues among her patients, like fatty liver disease, where excess fat is stored in the liver. And many of these patients also have other problems, like type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, and mental health concerns. This year, the American Academy of Pediatrics released new guidelines for managing childhood obesity. The guidelines recommend at least 26 hours of intensive family-based health visits within a year. That can be a lofty goal. It's a big time commitment for families and a challenge for a health system that's already overloaded. Christine wondered, how could obesity be addressed earlier? before all these problems emerge? And how are other clinicians dealing with this? Most parents are familiar with kids' growth charts. In the clinic, parents love it when I invite them to peek over my shoulder to take a look. They track their kids' height and weight with the same attention as checking a report card. And when a child is underweight, there's almost universal concern. But since I finished medical school in 2000, it's become much more common for kids to be overweight. One in five children in the United States is obese. 
That's 15 million children. What's more, over 4.5 million children have severe obesity. This subset of heavier children couldn't be plotted on the old growth charts. So last year, the CDC made extended growth charts to monitor these kids. And the main concern is that these children are developing type 2 diabetes and hypertension and metabolic syndrome at a very young age. That's Dr. Eloisa Jonquera, a pediatrician at Natividad Hospital in Salinas, California. It's the major public hospital in Monterey County. Natividad serves a largely Hispanic community. I would say over 90% of our patients are Hispanic. And of those, the vast majority are families of farm workers. During the COVID-19 pandemic, childhood obesity in California increased from 19% to 26%. The statistics are worse for children of color. And in Monterey County, where two-thirds of the population is Latino, the rate of childhood obesity is even higher. Clinicians like Eloisa see patients before they get referred to specialists like me. They see these patients first, and they see them the most often. How does she tackle these issues? Have you seen a change in the percentage of, or the number of children you've seen with type 2 diabetes or prediabetes? Definitely. Very clear change. I would say in the last 10 years, it's been astonishing. Diabetes is just one problem. Children with severe obesity have higher rates of asthma, high blood pressure, and kidney problems. They can't get rest because of sleep apnea. They also get arthritis and liver disease. Eloisa has seen all of this. These chronic health conditions pile on the county's already overburdened primary care system. So when the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended kids with obesity get at least 26 one-hour appointments for what it calls intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment, she was glad someone finally sounded the alarm. But the expectations also collide with reality. In a primary care visit setting, you have 20 minutes from beginning to end with a patient. That includes pre-charting, seeing the patient, and closing the chart. So you can't really explore any diet and food issues within that time frame. I think even if they hired 50% more providers, that would still not be enough. Eloisa says she doesn't have the training to prescribe weight loss medications, another intervention the new guidelines suggested. Anyway, she thinks medications, some of which have to be taken indefinitely, are jumping basic steps. Steps like improving access to nutritious foods or making it safe and appealing to stay physically active. More medicalization of more issues that are going to be treated with pharmaceuticals. Plus, for her patients who truly need medications or even surgery, the wait list to see specialists with expertise can be months. Then families need to get to these appointments. And they're usually far from home. Students would have to miss school, and parents would miss work. In our population, they work from April to November. So trying to get those families to miss days of work to come to the clinic for problems that they don't see as a problem, you are setting yourself up for failure. Because if they miss so many days of work, they get put at the end of the line and they're not going to be called to work again. Eloisa knows success means designing visits to fit working families' lives. To spend more time with more patients, she wants to restart longer group visits something she did before the pandemic. I set up group visits once a week 
where we would meet with eight to ten families and we would talk about food choices, reading labels, portion sizes. We did it in Spanish. I tried to do most of it in the winter when the parents would come. So you have time. You have time for questions and answers. You have time for slides. You have time for hands-on experiences like having the children measure the sugar that goes into each drink. Eloisa also wants to improve nutrition. She says limited access to healthy foods is a driver of pediatric obesity in the county. It's a paradox in this place that's known as the salad bowl of America. The Salinas Valley produces 70% of the nation's lettuce crops. But the farmers who work here often don't get much of the bounty. These are family-oriented, hard-working people. They put the food in our plates. And I don't think they get enough recognition for that. About two-thirds of farm workers in Salinas and the surrounding county are food insecure. Because families juggle paying for rent, utilities, gas, and childcare, when it's time to buy food, they often scrimp. It's a lot cheaper to buy an extra-large pizza for a family of five than buying fruits and vegetables for a family of five. To encourage her families to buy more fruits and vegetables, Eloisa writes Fresh Rx Prescriptions. It's a food-as-medicine program funded by Natividad Hospital and redeemable at participating farmers markets. Any child who is overweight is eligible to get a prescription. As it happens, there's a farmer's market right outside her clinic. Everyone's harvest market is in the parking lot of Natividad Medical Center. Albus Clarabel Lopez describes the produce piled high in her stand. Um, zanahoria, alcachofa, eh, cebolla, cilantro. She and her husband, former field workers, now run their own farm. Albus proudly sells her produce to customers who often work in the ag industry themselves. She wants to change how her community eats. I've always eaten healthy because I grew up on a ranch, but here in the city, it was a little more difficult for me to find things. Because her son developed type 1 diabetes at 8 years old, she's careful about what he eats. She says unhealthy foods are everywhere, even in the school meals that are free to all students. My concern about the school food is that they have a lot of bread, bread, and milk with sugar. She's right. When I check the school menus where I live, there's lots of starch and added sugar. Breakfast includes sugary cereals. For lunch, how about popcorn chicken with a mashed potato bowl? The second ingredient in the fat-free chocolate milk is sugar. For my own patients with fatty liver, that's not okay. Albus knows that wanting healthy food is one thing, but affording it is another. So she often nudges her customers to visit the mesitas, the little tables where people can sign up for programs that help low-income residents buy fresh food. To see what else community health centers can do, I drive about an hour from Salinas to San Jose. I stop at the Indian Health Center of Santa Clara Valley. Working with the local food bank, the center has a regular farmer's market where they give away fresh food. And they've got a free fitness center. Hi, my name is Marissa Hemstreet. I'm from the Canyoncito Band of Navajos. Marissa is the fitness coordinator for the center. And I'm happy to say I started with them as a patient first. 
and then started as an employee about a year after that. We have a treadmill, we have an elliptical, we have two different recumbent bikes, and we have a rower. We do personal training and just folks come in and have the gym to use. Kids use the gym free with a doctor's referral. There are also free camps and kid-friendly classes. Now one arm's going to go forward, the other arm's going to go back. Ready? Go. When kids and parents come to Marissa, there's often a lot of shame. We've had children come in here and tell us, like, hey, like, I want to come work with you because I'm fat. And for some folks, like, they want to cry when they hear the word fat because they're like, fat means bad. Fat means ugly. Fat means disgusting. When in reality, fat is just a substance. Marissa encourages kids and their families to reframe this loaded word. It's because she understands weight stigma. I'm not super, like, cut. I don't have, like, super defined muscles. But I'm able to move my body comfortably and efficiently. And some folks, they'll say, oh, you're, you don't look like this or you don't look like that. Are you sure? Are you even certified? Even some doctors have doubted her. Have you been ever made to feel like self-conscious about your body? Oh, I want to say 100% um, because of body mass index scales. I'm over my BMI for my height. The BMI, or body mass index, is a quick and dirty way to calculate a person's risk for obesity. But it's got problems. At the same weight relative to their height, some people can be healthy and others not. It depends on a lot of other factors, including gender, age, race or ethnicity, and physical activity. So that's why with children, I also like to remind parents that, you know, BMI skills, um, they're not the end-all, be-all to assessing whether or not you're a healthy person, whether you're a child or an adult. Marissa doesn't dwell on a numerical weight, and she's careful with her language. We do check weight, but I only, for the kids, I only try to check weight maybe once every two weeks because I don't like them to see the number and either be discouraged by it. And I, after each reading, I don't tell them whether I feel like, oh, this is an improvement or you've lost weight. Good job. I just say thank you. You know, thank you for, you know, being vulnerable and standing on a scale. When she gets a new kid referred to her for fitness training, she starts by addressing the family unit, not just the child. Children, they, they don't just listen. They, you know, they follow by example. So if a parent is looking to you know, change the lifestyle of their child, that they also have to get involved and they also have to move. Marissa's ultimate goal is making a positive change in kids' overall well-being. It's not so much the weight. It might be you know, the way the kid feels. If they're a little bit less lethargic, that's a win. If they feel like they can breathe normally when they're playing with their friends, that's a win. Learning that all of our wins for our kids is not weight-oriented. It can be other things, like improving their life. That story was reported by pediatrician Christine Wen and produced with support from the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism. At the beginning of this episode, we heard from Leonard Rett, who found himself at a crossroads during a family trip to Disney World in 2017. He weighed over 400 pounds at that time, and he couldn't go on any of the rides with his son Jalen, who was seven. When they got home, Leonard decided it was time for a major change in his life. He set up appointments with the bariatric surgery program at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia. But first, before any surgical interventions, he had to get healthier. My nutritionist said, 
focus on your diet, what it would be like after the surgery, before the surgery. So that meant cutting out sweets, fast food, things of that nature. In September of 2019, I lost 33 pounds in a month because I cut out everything. It really wasn't a difficult change because I know what I was trying to do. And I knew that there were sacrifices that had to be made in order for me to get to that point. So I never set a goal in terms of a number. It was just always to get as healthy as I could get. Leonard had bariatric surgery in 2020. His weight continued to go down, and he kept making new goals for himself. I wanted to be able to walk, walk for a mile, and then a mile and a half, and, and, and like just to, to go as far as I could go. I got up to the point where I could walk five miles at a time. And then another motivating factor is I would intentionally buy clothes that were too small. I'm not big on wasting money, so I would buy something that was too small and then work towards being able to, to wear it. Once I got to the point of being able to walk five miles, I brought a bike. And I actually turned my basement into a gym. I got an elliptical, I got a stationary bike, I got some free weights. Like, just trying to eliminate all the excuses. Once I got below 300, I said, you know, maybe I can start, you know, doing some things that I was doing before. So a friend of mine got me in, in touch with a baseball facility down in Afton. I got back into being a baseball umpire. It was a great, great experience. When you go back out there for the first time in like 25 years doing something, it's like, it, it, it's, it's uplifting. That tells you that what you did to get to this point didn't go for naught. You know, I can run, I can, you know, there was a time when, you know, you go outside and it's raining and you just, you know, you just walk, you get wet. I, I could actually run to get out of the rain. Like it was, it was like getting 25, 30 years of your life back. I take my son, we go go-kart racing. Like there are just things that you never thought, I never thought I'd be able to do again. My son plays lacrosse. I've actually gone out to some of the practices and actually participated. It's a wonderful feeling. It really is. Jalen is my biggest supporter next to my wife, Michelle. We've been married. It'll be 14 years in next month. I was a fairly large man when we met, and I got larger over the course of our marriage. But she never made me feel like it was a bad thing. You know, when I started to go on this, this, this journey, she actually changed her diet. She's actually vegan now. Leonard says having that support and understanding from his family and also his doctors and the patient support group was key for him. Certain aspects of society, it's a lot easier to make fun of someone who's overweight. It's not a thing where people really try to understand what someone who's overweight goes through. And I think that just contributes a lot to depression reclusiveness, not really wanting to go anywhere, not really wanting to do anything. Unfortunately, if somebody has a low self-esteem, it could really get to them. And that kind of just spirals into a really, really bad situation. And, you know, that's how I think a lot of times, unfortunately, a lot of people get so, they gain so much weight that just regular movements are difficult. But I, I think just society in general, the way that people who are obese are treated. It leads to a lot of terrible things. 
the journey is not over because every day I have to make sure that I'm doing the things that I need to do to keep myself where I am and, and try to get better with it. It's a great thing to feel like you have your life back and just trying to continue the process on because again, this is my life for the rest of my life. That's Leonard Rett. He has been managing his weight after undergoing bariatric surgery. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash NPR and use code NPR. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded. NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.